This is an ABC podcast. Hi, and welcome to Science Friction. Natasha Mitchell joining you with a show from our archive that really struck a chord this past year with you as it became clear we were dealing with a once-in-a-hundred-year global pandemic. The question on all of our lips was where the hell did this virus come from? So today it's pandemics, pangolins, but most of all, bats. And in fact, is it us, not them? China is the world factory of consumer goods or manufactured goods. Similarly, China is also a manufacturer of animal cruelty, using and eating wild animals. And now we see virus outbreaks in the last few decades that are related to animal eating in China. What happens in China, what people do to animals in China have repercussion beyond Chinese border. That's Professor Deborah Zhao. She's author of Animals in China, Law and Society. And we're going to take a closer look at the animals that find themselves in China's wet markets today and into the curious origins of this almighty pandemic. I have to say that it's beyond anything that I could have imagined. It really is at that you know, worst case scenario scale as far as I'm concerned. And that's from someone who's you know, worked in the area and someone who's tried to increase the awareness that this kind of thing could happen. It seems to have happened so rapidly and we seem by and large to have been totally unprepared for it. Hume Field, he's with the Echo Health Alliance as their science and policy advisor for China and Southeast Asia regions. A veterinarian and environmental scientist, he knows his infectious diseases and his bat coronaviruses. He's an international authority on them, which is why he is quick to discredit conspiracy theories swirling around about the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus that's caused this COVID-19 pandemic. One being that it came from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, a team he's worked closely alongside. There was a big, a lot of discussion about conspiracy theories, either about manufactured viruses, about bio-warfare, about escapes from laboratories, etc. You know, truth is stranger than fiction. We, we don't need to manufacture this virus. It exists in nature as it is. From a scientific point of view, that argument that it's a manufactured virus has been totally discredited. When SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, first appeared in 2002 in China, Hume was part of the international team that did that hard detective work over years to trace its origin back to a coronavirus in bats. And the team's been surveying and identifying bat coronaviruses across China since. The SARS-CoV-2 virus is 96% similar genetically to a bat coronavirus. Working with SARS, uh, and with colleagues in China, I had the opportunity to see how intelligent, how, how technically skilled, how ethically principled my colleagues in China were 
Hume's a signatory to a recent letter in the Lancet Medical Journal expressing solidarity with Chinese scientists and concern that conspiracy theories are threatening the rapid, open and transparent sharing of data on the COVID-19 outbreak. I know people say, yes, but it's a Chinese system, it's autocratic, they can be made to do it, etc. I know that their principles are above that. Those people in that lab at Wuhan will be working flat out around the clock. There's no manual that comes with this virus. You know, you've got to start from scratch or start from your nearest point of knowledge, SARS, develop diagnostics, try to uh, treatment methodologies. You know, they'll be working flat out, getting pulled in every direction, trying to get on top of this thing that's got a head start. But where the virus got its real head start, perhaps over millennia, is in bats. And this scientist's adventures with bats have taken him all over the place. Yeah, all, all over, really. David Heyman is Professor of Infectious Disease Ecology at Massey University in New Zealand. And, yeah, we've seen people selling hundreds of bat carcasses through to, um, yeah, people offering gin as a um, libation and a little offering to the bats in a cave. And there's no doubt about it, is there? Bats are beguiling. But what I want to know is why bats in particular harbour so many viruses that are so deadly to us and yet not to them. And to do that, we need to get to know bats a bit better, which make up about a fifth of the world's mammalian species. They're phenomenal mammals, actually. They're the only mammals that truly fly. They're evolutionarily old. They've been around many tens of millions of years, and we know that from fossil records. Basically, they live, they live everywhere on Earth, really, apart from Antarctica. So that includes New Zealand out here, Hawaii, through to Arctic. So they're very well adapted. They're lots of different species, and they're really good for the environment. So, for example, predation of pests. They prevent crop and forest damage because they're eating insect predators. So they're hugely ecologically important. Certainly the, the fruit-eating bats are great seed dispersers. It'll eat a seed, it'll eat a fruit. The seed passes through the bat's gastrointestinal system and then it poops it out in, in a new location. So that helps maintain forests. They also pollinate uh, really important crops. Because they've evolved for so long, there are many um, plants, for example, that rely on bats to do the pollination and or the seed dispersal for them. David Heyman, what makes bats such a distinct, such a prime reservoir for novel viruses that can then subsequently cross over and infect other animals and then on to humans? What is it about the life of bats and bats as a species? So there are many hypotheses. One is just the sheer diversity of bats around the world. So therefore, they have a diverse range of viruses. And we think that they've been around for a long time. They're typically long-lived species, relatively speaking. You know, they will live for uh, years and tens of years, not like rodents that live for, you know, oh, I think within a year they're gone. They're really like humans in cities. I mean, they form very dense colonies with thousands in a small space. So that's ideal for infections to be able to transmit from one individual to another. You're getting the picture right. Virus heaven. And what's more, a bat colony might contain multiple bat species. So viruses can adapt and cross over between them, hitching a ride when the bats migrate onwards. So then they can seed infection into new colonies. So these multiple networks and communities of bats spreading virus, lots of different viruses between them. 
probably lead to them being great hosts for these viruses. You look at those things and say, well, you know, if I was a virus, then this is where I would do well. I've got all of this going for me. I've got the interaction. I've got the numbers. I've got the, you know, persistence over time, et cetera, et cetera. And the range of viruses bats carry or that originated in bats is mind-blowing. Yeah, there's extraordinary diversity. And it's not just um, coronaviruses. That seems to be the same for paramyxoviruses and uh, rabies probably had its ancestry in bats and even things like measles and canine distemper virus which we know and people will be familiar with lissa viruses uh, herpes too ebola influenza a hendra nipper but most viruses that bats incubate don't seem to make bats sick Rabies seems to be one of the notable exceptions. Why don't they get sick? We don't quite know because bats are really hard to study. Some of the hypotheses are that because bats have evolved to repair their muscles, for example, the the tissues that get damaged during flight, because flight is really intensive, they've evolved repair mechanisms that enable them to repair cells, for example. So, and viruses damage cells, and there's lots of there's lots of sort of consequences to that. But that probably doesn't tell the entire story. There's things around their immune system that mean that they, they seem to have constant parts of their immune system switched on during the day. So, And also they, they fly every day, so they get their core body temperature goes up. They can effectively what we do if we're sick and, and feverish. So if you can imagine that we, as we're mammals, uh, we have the similar responses when we're ill, one of the hypotheses is that when we do our normal response to viral infections, then actually these viruses have evolved in that sort of environment and they don't mind, so they carry on replicating. The things that we do to suppress viruses don't suppress the bat viruses. But that's just one hypothesis and there's a few others. Clever little biological systems. I saw something recently, uh, a molecular clock analysis that said that coronaviruses and bats had been coexisting uh, for at least... 10,000 years, probably for hundreds of thousands of years and possibly millions of years. So, you know, these are very um, robust and sort of long-term evolutionary relationships uh, of these viruses with these bats. And the issue is not about changing to become infectious, pathogenic to people. It's about getting from the bat to the person. While they're ticking around in bats doing their own thing, there's no problem. It's this bridge, what we call an epidemiological bridge. Once that bridge is created so that the agent can get from the reservoir to the person or to people, you know, that's when the trouble starts. And there is a perfect place for that epidemiological bridge to be built. One of the concerns is that people are becoming more exposed to so-called zoonotic diseases, diseases that animals like bats and pangolins and and other species might harbour. They aren't afflicted by the diseases that those viruses might cause, but then they cross over into humans. And one of the environments in which that might happen are in the Chinese wet markets where domesticated and wild animals are sold. How significant are those markets? They're big and small markets all over the country. They're very common and they sell all sorts of animals, wild animals and also cats and dogs and other animals. Professor Deborah Zhao from Griffith University specialises in animal law, ethics and welfare in China, where she was born. She knows these markets well. And they're often in 
very appalling conditions, and some of them were just killed on the spot. And they do not go through any health checks or, or food safety clearance. And so, you know, you would see animals in cages, I would see animals in cages. Hume Field hasn't forgotten the scenes he witnessed while investigating the original SARS outbreak with the World Health Organisation. There'd be some um, egrets that had gotten into the wrong cage and they were in a cage with, uh, you know, some other rabbits or something like that. And uh, there'd be a dead one there and one getting trampled here. And, you know, the, you'd see a, um, a small deer or something that had been wild caught and had a broken leg where it had been caught in a snare trap or something like that. So, so quite disturbing and distressing and challenging from a biosecurity point of view, challenging from a hygiene and a biosecurity point of view. And a challenge to how animals are viewed at the heart of Chinese philosophy too. Confucianism, Taoism, and in the Chinese zodiac as well, 2020 is the year of the rat. Sorry, not such a good one right now if that's you. The idea is yi. Humans and nature are one, as one. Humans, animals are all part of nature, and there are no separation, no segregation between animals and humans. We are all part of the universe, the cosmos, interconnected, unlike the dominant Western philosophy until recent time. So there's this sense that we animals, non-human animals, human animals share the same moral cosmos as well. Yes. In the imaginary world, the animals are full of life, full of emotions, full of intelligence. However, reality for animals in China is quite different from the philosophical ideals. Animals are treated simply as food, as tools, without any regard for their feelings and their sufferings. They are a harsh reality in China for animals. And many animals have been hunted and eaten to the brink of extinction or to extinction or near extinction. And can you give us a sense of the range of wildlife that's farmed, that's exploited? It seems like uh, everything and anything from bats to badgers, snakes to salamanders, and every bit of their body is exploited. About a hundred different species of wild animals that have been farmed and allowed to be farmed for eating purposes, including various types of birds, peacock, deer, snake, silver cats, giant salamander, deer, crocodile, many different types of animals that are allowed to be farmed for eating purposes. And uh, in some uh, Chinese provinces, they specialize in farming different types of wildlife. For instance, in the southern provinces, specialize in farming crocodile. In other provinces, in the north, they farm wild frogs, all for eating purposes. Eating wildlife in China has a very long history. It is a cultural practice. In today's China, eating wildlife is a huge industry that has been encouraged and supported by the Chinese state. For instance, in 2016, it was estimated that the total value of wildlife sold and eaten was about 
125 billion Chinese renminbi, which is about、uh, over 20 billion Australian dollars, and it was also disclosed that around six million or so people directly involved in the farming of wild animals for eating purposes. China has, in fact, some of the toughest criminal penalties for wildlife crimes, but enforcement of these laws is limited. So illegal traffickers, farmers, and others bring their animals to market for sale, and those markets are the making of a possible pandemic. Obviously, some people are thinking, "Well, why the hell are you eating bats?" But people eat many things around the world. People、uh, value. Bat meat for different reasons,、uh, and and the thing, the reason why these are important for viral transmission, or we think they might be,、uh, it's the same with poultry and f- influenza viruses, is that these locations can act as mixing pots, and you can have animals、uh, defecating, urinating, they're stressed, maybe you bring in together the different species that may not be together.、Um, if hand hygiene and stuff like that isn't optimal, then This is where you have the opportunity for an infection to go from one species to another, and and that includes humans. And it's on an industrial scale. We're not talking about people going and hunting, you know, bats or or other wildlife in the forest. We're talking about the sort of industrial scale of wildlife trade. And again, it's not just that. It's that. You know the bats will come into the system, and you know the civets will come into the system. Whatever, all of these wildlife will come into the system. You know you've got this mixing of species and this potential of mixing of viruses in these animals that are under stress, sick, and dying as they've gone from their wild environment to the market. So, you know, it's just an absolute no-brainer. That, and you would you would wonder that that. Uh, spillovers and emergence wouldn't happen more often, but it's certainly an absolute recipe for that kind of thing to happen. So, if we imagine the crossing from bats to, say, patient zero somewhere in that wet market, yeah, what, what ingredients does it take for a virus to cross a species from a bat and into us? I mean, this happens incredibly infrequently, given how many viruses bats carry. To me, is one of the interesting questions: is why does it happen when it does happen? Why doesn't it happen elsewhere? So, you need the bats to come from a population that is infected, and then you need the infection to be circulating in that particular bat to be not just infected, but actually shedding virus. So, you know, whether it's through feces, through urine, through saliva, however it is. So. And then, of course, the viruses have to be adapted to be able to replicate in a human cell. So there needs to be stuff that's happened in the bat and with the virus. But then a human has to have contact with that virus, and the virus needs to get inside their body and survive their immune system's all-out assault on it. And then that patient zero needs to become infectious themselves, and then spread the virus to another person. And then that virus needs to hop to another person, and another person, and another, exponentially. Brewing a pandemic is kind of hard because you you need lots of things to line up and. They are all random events. When you look back with hindsight, you think, "Oh, well, that was obvious."、Um, and some of us are getting better at saying, "Well, these are high-risk activities," but they might be high risk. But you can never say for sure what, that it's going to happen. And the way it might be helped to happen: a coronavirus in a bat crossing over into humans is often via an intermediary species, including pangolins. I gather. So, in the case of SARS-CoV-2 causing this COVID-19 
pandemic, it's thought that the virus has jumped crossed species from bat to potentially pangolin or another intermediary species and then into humans. Pangolins are part of this wildlife industry. In what way? Under the current Chinese law, pangolins are not allowed to be farmed for use in traditional Chinese medicine or to be eaten. Pangolin is called Chuanshanjia in, uh, in Chinese. Literally, it means hard shell dredging through mountains. In Chinese folklore or traditional Chinese medicine, pangolins are thought to live in mountains and have the magic ability to dig and dredge through mountains and hills. So they are believed to have this magical medicinal power of dredging through and clearing human bloodstream and assisting human blood and body fluid circulation. So according to Chinese folk belief and the traditional Chinese medicine, penguins are thought to have the function of helping human nursing mothers produce milk, curing women's menstrual problems and other illnesses. But all these beliefs have no scientific basis whatsoever. And so they are, they are still just some folk belief at the best for uh, traditional Chinese is pseudoscience. So what does that mean for the life of a pangolin in China, potentially? They are heavily hunted to the brink of extinction and they are trafficked and hunted illegally from other countries and trafficked to China and they are Scales are used in traditional Chinese medicine and their flesh and the blood are used and eaten uh, in China and also in Southeast Asia, largely because of traditional Chinese medicine and also ignorance. Pangolins are hunted and eaten to the brink of, of uh, extinction. And one concern here is that pangolins, those cute scaly anteaters, already critically endangered, will be culled because of their possible role in getting SARS-CoV-2 from bats into us. That's what we saw with mask palm civets, which were killed en masse after the original SARS outbreak, even though they were subsequently found to not be the natural reservoir for the SARS coronavirus. So what about bats? They're also eking out an existence in a world worn down by humans. To be honest, it's, it's everything we do. Um, you know, the bats are innocent bystanders and it's, they're, they're, they're getting on with their lives. I do a lot of my work in Africa um, and we've looked at things like forest fragmentation and deforestation and hunting wild animals. Yeah, these things that increase our contact between a host of an infection and ourselves. Um, yeah, if you imagine you've got a you've got a large forest, and then as people start to encroach and fragment that forest, you, you literally just get patches of forest next to um, really subsistence farming. I mean, those actually might even favour some of the fruit bats that are linked to Ebola virus. They might favour kind of generalist fruit bats that actually can forage in the fruit crops. So in effect, you're just bringing people closer to to the wildlife there. And that just increases your chance of contact. And clearly, these aren't happening all the time. There's plenty of fruit bats in Africa, and there's not that many Ebola virus outbreaks, even if we're missing missing quite a few, which I suspect we are. Again, it's that thing that you're you're fragmenting a habitat. You're causing bats to change their behaviour, which is increasing 
the risk in people. Yes, you're developing mathematical models in a sense of, of the Ebola virus and its outbreaks in West Africa in relation to the landscape in which those outbreaks occur. Give us a sense of the work you're doing there. The work you're referring to is where we're looking at how landscape changes. So we can take um, satellite images, for example, and we can look at how patches of forest have uh, changed over time. Or we can just look at the, the fragment size. And then we look at things like, well, is it really biodiverse? Is there, are there lots of species there or not? And then we try to look at how that either correlates with the risk or, or, or the change in the risk of uh, Ebola virus or we're also doing some other we've done some other work where we've tried to look at where that fragmentation is happening but also where human population population density is highest so so therefore where's the greatest risk of a of an outbreak I think these are quite interesting and important analyses because we're getting at the process so there's the process it's the forest fragmentation is a process that might be leading to these outbreaks but also with them where do you need to focus where do you need to look to try to prevent them well David Heyman some people might say well it's either us or the bats and humans are narcissistic species and are likely to say, well, it's off with the bats then. So there would be potentially call for more culling of bat colonies around the world in response to a COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, maybe people might argue that. I haven't actually seen much of a call for that, thankfully, right now. Um, we really need to look after these for all the reasons that I've said about them being really important species. There's just no need to persecute them. There's no uh, malice in what they do. They're not particularly pest species, though some might argue with that. These species are actually crucial, just the important what we call ecosystem services. Uh, that sounds too technical, really. Um, just the things that they do for society things that we want, need and value, they get lost. And, and there was an emerging fungal disease killing bats in North America and it made some colleagues try to estimate the amount of money the bats saved the US through pest predation. And it was billions of dollars to the annual US economy each year. Really, it's quite, for me, it's a much more simple choice. Um, you know, we need to conserve these things, but we need to think very carefully what we're doing that's increasing our risk of disease emergence. You can point to cultural practices, but people also talk about and point to the industrialisation of food production systems, in effect undercutting small farmers who in turn turn to farming wild species to make a, a subsistence living. They are also pushed out onto marginal lands or closer to forests where they're going to be exposed to bats as well. So there's an entire economic ecosystem at work here, it seems, potentially. Yes, look, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. The person that catches some bats or, you know, whatever in the forest is typically doing it at a subsistence level. They're not doing it to, you know, to make a lot of money. They're doing it to survive. In China, and particularly in that southern China area where, you know, historically the the demand or, or greater demand for wildlife has been, uh, you know, Guangxi, Guangdong province, etc. There's not much wildlife left there. So now stuff's coming from further afield. Some it's coming from all those Southeast Asian countries that border China and further afield again. After the first SARS outbreak in 2002-03, wet markets were shut down. Did that last for any measurable time? Not very long. Market and the farming and the sales of wild animals in China in the last 20 years 
has increased uh, enormously. But I think and I hope this time it will be different. The Chinese legislature, national legislature, has announced that they are going to permanently ban the farming and consumption of wild animals from now on. So both the farming and the consumption, are you hopeful that that would sustain, given how central wildlife is in people's diet or in traditional medicine practices? Traditional Chinese medicine and its use of animal body parts is exempt from the ban. That's what the Chinese government has announced, unfortunately. But I think they should ban all the consumption of wild animals in both eating and also in traditional Chinese medicine. So this is a huge loophole. Today, there is simply no need to use these animals in traditional Chinese medicine. And also there is no scientific basis. There are no medical evidence for the use of these animal body parts in the medicine. But how tough will Chinese authorities be in enforcing this new ban or keeping wet markets closed, given their poor track record in enforcing wildlife crimes and the fact that they've encouraged wildlife farming as a profitable industry? Don't know yet. But what I can say is enforcement will be critical. Also critical, says Hume Field of EcoHealth Alliance, is better global surveillance of emerging viruses. We need to know what's there. EcoHealth Alliance, and particularly Peter Daszak, the president, has been saying till he's blue in the face, we need to know what's there so that we can assess threat potential you know, will we, even if we do make the investment in the immediate aftermath of this, when, you know, economies become tight, I think the money to do that kind of work would be cut back. Oh, it's okay now. It hasn't happened for a long time. Uh, I think we've got it sorted. So I'm sceptical that we can make a long-term commitment as a global community to that kind of work. It's a strange juxtaposition, isn't it, that our exploitation of animals ultimately puts us at terrible, terrible risk. That's why we need to, all human beings, all human societies, we need to respect other lives, non-human lives, and respect nature and not simply use them for human benefit and human enjoyment so much to think about. My guest, Professor Deborah Zhao, author of Animals in China, Law and Society, Hume Field of the Echo Health Alliance, and David Heyman from Massey University, all joining me via Skype. More details of their work on the Science Friction website where you can also email me. Tell your friends about the podcast. Thanks to Jane Lee and Jules McKenzie. Take care, hey? Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.